the term data-driven product management was used before data was what it is today. It is about moving from your opinions to facts. It is not about moving to statistics and big data. That's Noah Gannat. She'll tell us more about being data-driven, plus how product leaders can be more effective, and why product leadership is so difficult, even for experienced managers, and the differences with product management itself. Noah Gannot is a product management coach, consultant, and trainer focused on helping product leaders, VPs of product, CPOs, and heads of product, become more effective at leading their teams as well as handling the unique requirements of their executive position. Noah has a long and frankly storied previous career as a product management leader herself, as she shares in this episode. You're listening to episode number 83 of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority podcast. You can find the notes for this show and links to all the resources we mention at alltheresponsibility.com slash 83. Now, as a student of product management and product management thinkers and leaders like Noah, I listen and learn and track the conversation to understand where product managers are having challenges, what you're running into, where you're most interested in learning and improving. And the goal of this podcast, the All the Responsibility podcast, is to give you the information and insights to help you create better outcomes. The episodes are designed for you to take action on immediately. I want your mind racing, and I want you thinking to yourself, I can do that, and I'm leveling up. Now, in this episode, Noah will share her insights, along with three things you can start doing today to level up your product leadership intuition and ambition. Noah, thank you for joining us today. I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'd love to get some deeper information about how you got started in product management and how you sort of transitioned maybe up to the point of where you then started doing consulting and training. I started, you know, over over 20 years ago, originally as a developer and a development manager and a system architect, done that for many years never with a product manager by my side. So I guess some of the thought process that a product person needs to have was always on my part. Back in 2005, that actually translated into getting a little bit more closer to to the business side and and, uh, market analysis side for a new project that I was working on that I actually asked my boss they wanted me to do something for for a new project. And then I asked why they want to do this and went and done my research and went back to them and said, you know, what you asked me to do isn't actually going to achieve what you want to achieve, which by now I can say it's classic product management. Uh, But by then I didn't know. I just did it intuitively. And my boss asked me a few questions to understand why. Well, it was more than a few, to be honest, because when somebody comes to you with such a statement, it's not always easy to embrace it. But I did come with with good answers backed by data, maybe not necessarily the the kind of data that people are used to today, but definitely backed by data and convinced him. And the project ended up getting times four resources and ended up to be great success. Mm-hmm. And that's where afterwards I really shifted to a role that is in between the business and development. And I also did my MBA. I learned that the business world that is outside of R&D, which I previously saw as my home, is really, really interesting. One of the things that I remember 
The first class that I took in my MBA was Foundations of Strategy. And I remember getting that insight and understanding that truly surprised me, although now it might seem trivial, that business success is not mystery. It's not entirely random. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, saved for people who are gifted and were born like this. Right. And it, it still is a jungle, but there are roads in the jungle that one can find and walk on. And it will make your, your, your path through the jungle smoother and, and easier to get on the other side. Right. Great. I love that metaphor of the jungle. Thank you. With roads. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then that's when I realized that I'm not going back to R&D. I just fell in love with this idea of using technology to actually drive business success. Mm-hmm. And doing my career research, because I always planned to become a VP R&D one day, and now this became irrelevant. Um, so during my career research, quite a few people told me I should try this thing called product management. It wasn't very popular, at least in Israel back in the days. Uh, so people couldn't tell me exactly what it is. They primarily told me that it could be frustrating and hard, but that's usually only encouraging me to try it heads on. And that's what I did. Like After a few people told me that product might be it, I said, I'll give it a chance. Right. I landed at a company called Imperva. It's a cybersecurity company founded by Shlomo Kramer. I don't know if you know him. It was one of the founders of Checkpoint, the largest Israeli cybersecurity company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and one that is considered great success uh, until today. I joined them. I joined Imperva when there were about 100 people. I led one of the two products that they had. So I, for three years up until an IPO of almost like half a billion dollars back in 2011. And that's when I moved to eBay, to the R&D center in Israel. Basically, I built and managed the product management and the product practice in the R&D center. It was part of a larger effort of the entire site management to make the Israeli branch a little bit more strategic, bringing some of the core systems of, uh, of eBay away from the headquarters and, and into our R&D center. I think this effort was very successful. The, the site grew dramatically when I was there. I was there for almost five years, and mm-hmm. we were definitely able to bring some of uh, or larger parts of eBay's structured data initiative and, and systems uh, all the way to, to Israel. Basically right. making sense out of eBay's big data so that it's useful and insightful for everyone. Okay, I think we'll come back to that topic a little later. And then the startup bug came to bite again. So I decided I'm going to join a startup and I wanted to join earlier at seed stage and I wanted to join at VP level so that I owned the thing and lit it from the get-go. And I joined a startup called Twiggle that did reinvent search for e-commerce products. They had a technology, the founders came from Google and they saw Google's approach to search and they wanted to use it for e-commerce. So I was there, I was a VP product. I joined them at seed stage when they were a company with a great technology, but no product. So did Mm -hmm. all the definitions of what the product actually is, the go-to-market, the initial sales. I've stayed there for two years, in which during which the company grew to about a hundred people. Uh, we raised fifteen million dollars that I was uh, that I was directly involved in. Uh, of course, grow the team, the processes, work with the board, and, and 
KPIs and metrics regularly and strategic roadmap. We won cool vendors from Gartner during that time. So worked with them a lot on that. Anything you can imagine for a startup at this, uh, at this stage. And that's when I actually decided to move to consulting and mentoring. And what was the, what was the impetus at that point? What were you, were you seeing something in the market that said, oh, there's this unmet need that I can go fill? Describe that. You know, I always say I was lucky enough to become a product manager back but when product management was considered a very senior and strategic role. When I transitioned into product, the, the, the discussion or, or the word around it was, are you senior enough to become a product manager? There was no such thing as a junior product manager. It was very clear that you've had to walk a mile or two already just to be, to be able to, to become a product manager. And also because Agile was only starting to become very popular, my first product role, I oversaw over 40 engineers developing the product that I was working on. I, I had to rise above in a way. I couldn't work very closely with each and every engineer on what they needed to do. So by definition, the focus was more on does it work well for sales and what the market needs? And also, by the way, other aspects that today people don't necessarily see as part of uh, the product manager's role, but part of what I do is educating companies and product executives that it actually is part of the role. For example, one of the first things that I needed to do when I joined Imperva was training for the salespeople on how to deal with fierce competition on my product. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it wasn't a product presentation, although it did touch capabilities. It was a confidence presentation, some messaging and positioning, and let's prep you guys to, to whatever battles you're going to see in the field. It wasn't technical. It wasn't about roadmap. It was purely about you have what you have in your hands to win. I'm giving this as, a, as an example to parts of the role that today are not as prevalent. And part of what I saw in this, in this shift is that I, I want to bring product back to where I think it belongs, especially at the highest levels. So today, you know, product owners working in agile teams, maybe it's okay for them to be a little bit more hands-on and in the details. I do believe that they need to at least understand the strategy. But perhaps it's okay not to impact the strategy as much. But when you run a product organization, your role is much more than execution. And I saw a gap there that many people, even if they knew that it was part of the role, they didn't really know what it means. Many times there isn't anyone who can tell them what it means because the CEO isn't the product person. All they can say is, I want you to be more strategic. But what does that actually mean? It's very hard for them to, to articulate clearly. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think listeners to this podcast will resonate with what you're saying as well, because I talk about those types of concepts all the time. For me, one third of product management is about go to market and ensuring the sales and marketing teams have the tools. Oftentimes they only come from the, the only the product manager is in a position to know what to say in those situations. So uh, obviously, the more that we can get other people to help us articulate that, the better. But, you know, oftentimes we are the people that know that know how 
the specific feature impacts a customer's specific need, for example, or how a specific feature is should be used to overcome a specific competitive objection or something like that. Right. So I'm totally, I'm very aligned with you. And we'll talk about your blog and some of your articles in a little bit, but I've been reading through them and, and I, I sort of feel like I could have written them, except they're kind of better written than my typical <laughs> blog you. article. And, and you're doing it really from this higher level perspective as well, which is the, the, the product leadership organization as opposed to individual product managers. And so that's really great. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what the special challenges are of product leaders and how they differ from product managers. And you've started to talk a little bit about that, but are there some specific things that, for example, a product manager going into leadership needs to learn about? And the other flip side of that is, what about people that are coming into product leadership, but not from product? Obviously, they're at a big disadvantage in terms of what product looks like, but what, how should they be thinking about that? So that's really two questions. Right. So actually, the answer, I think, is not very different because the product leader's role, I'm talking specifically about the person at the top. It doesn't matter what their title is. It could be chief product officer or VP product or head of product or director of product. But the, the person who owns the product at the top, the thing about this role is that it is not a direct next level from whatever role you previously had. So even if, for example, you were a director in a larger company and now you join a startup and you are the top product person, your responsibility is immense, specifically in areas that you most likely never needed to tackle before. It's things like how your strategy isn't just impacting product, but building a strategy that makes sense for the business, especially in a startup when you need not only to develop a product, but you need to create product that it's not enough for customers to love it. It needs to have the potential to drive business success. Right. Doing that is most likely something you never tackled before, no matter how great your product experience is, product experience in the sense of product management experience, not product experience per se. That's why it's, it's like, it's a huge gap. So that's one. The other one, if you haven't done it before, so yes, you need to learn just the practices of product management, hands-on product management. If you haven't done this before, you need to learn management, just pure people management and managing things at sure. scale. And the fourth one, which is, again, something that you most likely haven't done regardless of your background, is how to become an executive in the company. And that, that means that your responsibility, again, is larger than your own little domain, even if your domain is very big, actually. It's how to work well with management and with a CEO. And specifically between the product leader and the CEO, especially in a startup where the product is the company in the first few years, there is an inherent conflict and how to work, how to work with that, but also how to work with a board, how to make the impact that you want to, you want to be able to make when you're, again, this is where you are really walking in the jungle. It's not the business jungle, it's the organizational jungle but if before things used to be just a little bit clearer i have my development team maybe there is 
a product marketing person that works with me, a designer, an analyst. Now everything is open and everyone has their own domain, but you need to impact them all. How to do that is, is a, a new skill for most people. And so do you think that the best product leaders in this definition, the CPO level, do they need to come? Is it best if they come from product or can they come from another domain where they're maybe stronger in the politics, so to speak, and the management and the executive persona and then learn product? Do you, do you think, can both those work? Is one of those better than the other? How should people think about that? So I see that both can work. I think, as I said earlier, both need mentoring and training and coaching. Of course, that makes sense. Because it's not an easy role. If product at any level is not an easy role, this one is extremely challenging and also extremely lonely because typically there is no one for you to learn from just by definition. So the coaching and the mentoring really, going back to the metaphor of the jungle, they sort of help help you find the roads or maybe give you some map, the, the paths through the jungle. Yeah. So that would be, that's what I call consulting, like actually helping you find the roads. That That is more of a consulting. Let's think together about your product and find the best strategy for it. The mentoring and the coaching are more like asking the right questions and giving you the feedback and the balance that you need in order to understand if what you're doing is right. Because one of the reasons product management is so hard is that there is no textbook, even though nowadays there are many textbooks, they are not very prescriptive. It's not like you know what to do, ABC, this is how you do this, period. It's also not very easy to measure it. So if, for example, how can you tell if you're a good engineer? You, you can tell if, if your code is stable, it's scalable, you have a, a small amount of bugs and none of them are too severe. You, you can tell. Yeah. How can you tell if you're a good marketer? If you have great leads and they're of high quality and your brand is recognized, but how can you tell if you're a good product person? This is something that the feedback and the measurement are very, very complex. And put that together with the fact that there is no very clear guideline as to what your role actually is. And most people need someone to help them understand that if they're doing the right thing, and if not, what the right thing is. Yeah, for product management, certainly the, the real indicator, which is profitable revenue is really lagging and many other people want to take credit for it, right? Yeah, not only credit, not only credit, but also impact. So one of the things that people ask me when, when they want my help is, how do I know if the problem is in product or in marketing or in sales? Back to the point we discussed earlier, usually it starts with a product, not with a product as in the code that is being delivered. But the product management as in the strategy and the core value proposition and the market analysis and the business case that can actually make this whole thing work. So for marketing to succeed with positioning and messaging and bringing the right leads to the product, you need as a product leader to be very clear on who are these right leads that the product is serving. And that's usually a gap that is left open unless something really bad happens. Before we move on to some of the articles you've written, I was wondering if you have any advice for product managers who want to improve their relationship with their leaders. Maybe you have some advice for those of us who are not 
the CPOs and how we can work better, how may, maybe w there's ways that we can help our leaders in non-obvious ways, and also how we can help them see the value that we're creating. That's actually maybe also part of it, right? So it can go both ways. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think the easiest way, it's, it's like a, a meta tool that they can <laughs> use, is uh, to use the same practices that we use as product managers with our customers to truly understand their needs and then come up with a solution to that, to use it internally. Use it with your manager, use it with the product, with a, I'm sorry, with the company's executives, use it with the CEO. Because much like customers can tell you that they want faster horses, but essentially what they're telling you is that they want to get faster from point A to point B. And it's your job as a product manager to hear what they say and understand what they meant, even though it's not the same thing and what they really need. Just use right. that skill that you have internally in all your relationships. When the CEO sort of instructs you to do something, don't be shy to treat it as if a customer was asking for a feature. And when the customer is asking for a feature, normally you'd go about asking them, understanding, making sure you fully understood what they need because it's not an instruction when, uh, when the customer is asking for a feature. It is up to you as the product manager to decide what the feature would be, but it's that the, the customer is actually indicating a gap or a pain that they have. Do the same with your CEO. I've heard quite a few CEOs that I personally asked and were open enough to share with me saying that they don't mean for every idea that they have to be treated as if it's, you know, a clear instruction well thought of, go and do exactly as I told. But people treat it that way. I'm using the example with the CEO, but it, it's the same with any other leader that you're talking with. Even when they complain about your product or complain about the fact that you're unable to tell them what they need to know, understand what they want, what they need, and then come up with, with an answer for that. Because that is what truly creates partnership. I think sometimes people have a misconception that executives especially, but people in general, when they ask for something, what they want to hear is, yes, okay, I'll do it. But from my experience, people feel much better when they feel that the other side actually thought about it, thought if it was a good idea, gave them some insight on how they are going to, to tackle it, to make sure that we're on the same page. Again, it's almost like some people would avoid this conversation because it feels like a conflict, but it's the other way around. This is what creates partnership because otherwise you're just, it's like two strangers. You're just a yes man if you don't, Yeah, you're not providing Exactly. Value. And even people who want people to do as they're told usually don't want just yes men. They want someone to, to think it through and understand that it's a great idea and agree and then do it. Exactly. They want the buy-in. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. What do you think that leaders can do to encourage more of that from their from the folks that report to them? I would say two things. One is be aware of the fact that when you say something, people see it just as a, an order and not an idea. So give your disclaimers. Make sure that if it's not something that you're just expecting to be done as is, make sure that they understand it as such. 
And the other one is to let their people deal with the matter. So instead of giving their people solutions, even if I know what is the solution that I think would be best for this, and since I've been doing this for so long, it is probably easiest for me to just come up with a solution, stop and, and force yourself to stop <laughs> and just let them deal with it and come up with an idea themselves. Now, you will have the opportunity to shape whatever solution they come up with. It's not like they're going to implement it. But the fact that they have thought about it themselves will help them develop the right way. Of course, they might come up with a solution that is maybe better than what I, I thought of. But even, if, but even if not, they will for sure have a better understanding of whatever solution they will be building afterwards. Even if it's exactly the same one that you were able to dictate from the get-go. Let them do right. it themselves. This is right. the only way to, to truly develop and, and to, to really create your team as your partners. Right, right. We have our team for a reason as well. Partly they're good at coming up with solutions to problems. And so they are likely to come up with a better solution than anything I could think of necessarily. I would hope that we would have the humility to, to remember that. I, I think it's even a little bit more than that. You know, I can share with you that the first time I became a manager... It was many years ago was when I was, a, I was a developer and then I became uh, the team lead for, for my team. And prior to that, I was, I'm sorry for, for not being too humble, let's put it aside for a second. I, I was kind of a, a tech guru for the team. <laughs> so I, I was the person that people would come to when something compiled on a certain operating system but didn't on another operating system and they wanted to understand what exactly is happening there. When I became a manager, I asked my mentor at the time, how can I maintain that level of expertise? And their answer was very simple and very powerful. My mentor said, you're not going to because that's no longer your job. So even if you truly are the expert, your job is no longer to be the expert. Let others develop themselves to be experts because your job is to be a manager and to be a leader. And that's a job that only you can do and the experts that report to you cannot do because you are the manager. That, that helped shape a lot of my management philosophy very early on. I, I think all of these insights into product leadership and things are, are really great. Now, I know that you have a program for chief product officers. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, and, and I'll ask you some questions as we go through. I didn't mention what, what I do maybe in my, in my consulting. Usually what I do in consulting and mentoring is I come to a company and I work with them, as I said, on their product strategy. Uh, I work primarily with a, with a chief product officer or VP product or head of product, whatever the title is but also with management on aligning on the new strategy. So it's twofold. One is actually helping the company, but the other one, the, the other part of it is helping the product executive succeed and, and probably, you know, be happy in this amazing yet extremely challenging <laughs> to sometimes impossible role. There are many things that this person, the product executive needs to know and needs to practice in order to succeed. It is related to the four areas that, that we mentioned earlier, the, the business and strategy and management and product and becoming an executive. 
So after doing that for many companies in a, in a sort of deep one-on-one sessions over time, I realized that there's probably room for doing that part of the mentoring of the product executive without actually doing the strategy for the company uh, as a standalone program. Now, I don't believe in learning product management in theory. So the program that I created is only for people who are currently in these roles, director of product, head of product, VP or CPO. It's a three-month, very intense program that provides a holistic on-the-job training for these people. So it includes learning of strategy and business and whatever it takes to actually do your job, but it also includes coaching, working on the soft skills that you need to have or to master in order to succeed. And it also includes practices for both, both for the strategy part and for the soft skills part that they they need to complete throughout the training and get feedback on so that they actually do the things that they want to learn because that's the only way to, to truly develop. And you offer this for Israeli CPOs only at this point? Yeah, at this point, yeah. It's, it's, offered, in, uh, it's offered only in Israel and in Hebrew. I do, I do get a lot of questions on whether it's offered also in English. So at this point, no, but I do have every now and then people who are interested in this that just choose the, the one-on-one mentoring instead. Uh-huh. Okay, so that, that's an alternative for folks that would be interested. So I know you just said you don't believe in learning product management in theory, and that's what you would learn in a book, for example. But do you have any thoughts about putting some of this? I know, and you have a blog, which you, which is great, and we'll talk a, bit, a little bit more about that. Do you have any thoughts about a book to help CPOs in this way? Yes, I'm, I'm actually working on a book. It's in the works. Amazing. And uh, and yeah, I'm trying. You know, also in my blog, I'm. You mentioned it. I'm I'm trying to make sure that my articles are. Again, not theory. They're very, there are many call to actions there, not so much in the marketing sense, but as in this is what you need to do to actually implement what I talked about here. And I'm trying to make this book as close to that as possible so, so that it's, it's actually, it's a workbook and not just a, a theory book. You know, I do that same thing in my posts and in my podcasts. I like to give people three actions to take based on the ideas. And I'll be asking you later for the, for your three actions. And they might be something that you have in a blog post or something else. Since we're talking about the blog as well, I wanted to ask you a few questions and circle back actually to something you talked about earlier, which was about data. I just want to say, I've been really enjoying reading your articles. I think they're really insightful and they align with me. So that of course makes me think they're insightful, <laughs> Thank you. but we have, we have a similar outlook on the product role and you have really interesting and insights that I don't have about the product leadership role, which is, which are really valuable. You did write a few times about data-driven product management, so-called, and you argue that we need to go to, to go beyond the data. You can't expect the data itself to give you the answers. And I'd love to hear more of your take on this. And in one post, you mentioned the fear of small numbers as something that holds people back from maybe doing good discovery. So maybe you can just elaborate on some of those ideas. So yeah, this is definitely one of the topics that I'm most passionate about because the term data-driven product management was used before data was what it is today. So it was in my first years in product management, 
Still, people were talking about data-driven product management, including, for example, I attended in 2008, I think, I attended um, the pragmatic marketing training for product managers. I believe they opened the seminar by saying that your opinion, however interesting, is irrelevant. And, and that's exactly what data-driven product management is about. It is about moving from your opinions to facts. It is not about moving to statistics and big data. And this is what people tend to, to forget nowadays when everything is so measurable and you have so many numbers for anything that you might think of. There are two things I would say. One is, even if you have the numbers, understanding why the numbers behave the way they do is not easy. And the numbers won't give you the answers. I remember, you know, when, when you need to report regularly on numbers, there always comes a time when you see the report and the numbers are not as pretty as you'd like them to be. And so you might want to, you might start to do some tweaking, but you don't really want to hide the truth. You can't do a lot with that once you've defined the metrics. Mm -hmm. and, and, and now comes a point where you need to explain why the numbers are the way they are. You can only make hypotheses. It's not like the numbers tell you the truth. You can make a hypothesis. You can go and see if other numbers support this hypothesis. But then you can only cross your fingers really hard and hope that it's true and you will show that it's better the next month, for example, when you need to report it again. Because uh, there is a whole new world, a whole, a whole world out there that the numbers cannot represent. The human world is far too complex to be fully represented by numbers. It almost doesn't matter how many numbers and how many metrics. So, so one thing to remember is that These metrics are their means to an end. They are here as a representation of something. They can help you as a supporting evidence to, mm -hmm. to a claim you're trying to make. They can be a great indicator if you want to see if something is, is off, maybe if, if you've done something right to see, it, to see it rising. But the numbers are not everything. So that's one mm -hmm. thing to remember. And the other one is in the world today, when it's so common to talk about really data and, and metrics for everything, what do you do when you don't have that much data? Because not all companies, especially in early stages, they don't have that much data. And then I see people are sort of refraining from, from using data at all because they don't have what they think data should be. And, and that's also a mistake, because if we go back to the roots of what data-driven product management is, it's about supporting your thoughts with facts. And facts are not only numbers. If all you have is 10 customers and seven out of those 10 are behaving a certain way, it's a good evidence. It's, maybe it is the best you can get at this point, because all you have is 10 customers. And of course, you need to make sure, you need to understand which assumptions you're making on your way to your goals. So if you're this, there is an assumption that these actually represent a much larger audience, you need to try and understand if that's really true. There are things that you can do, but just saying it's only 10 customers, I'm not going to use it, is leaving you almost helpless. 
because the tools that you do have, you're not allowing yourself to use. I'd argue you can even get insight from three of those customers, three of the 10, that can tell you the right direction because they have a business process that has a particular need that the other seven don't, but that's an interesting need that if you solve it, it gives you a competitive differentiator or something like that. Right. As long as you support it, as long as you understand what assumptions you're making and why and where you're taking this. Sometimes I'm asking, you know, my, my customers questions like, okay, let's say now you could get 3,000 customers to talk to you about this. Now what? How, would, how this would help you? Usually people don't go beyond that point in their thinking. And that's a problem because that means mm-hmm. that you don't know how you'll be using whatever evidence you, you will get. Thinking beyond that, now, after we've, we understood where we want to take it, we can go back to the question of, is three enough? Or maybe this is something that we do truly want to validate with a large amount of, of people. And, and there are ways to do that, by the way. They don't have to be your customers. If you understand that part of your validation needs to include that many people before you make the next step, you can get to that many people, even if they're not your customers and sort of validate that. I'm also always putting a disclaimer whenever I talk about validation. I really don't like this word when when we talk about getting getting sort of confirmation for our our assumptions because Mm -hmm. validation has a sense of certainty to it and it's never certain. We never will validate anything that we're doing 100%. It's more about risk management. As you make this mind, mindset shift to risk management, you understand that you can use many more things than maybe you thought you can. Because if it's all about risk management, so some assumptions are not worth validating because maybe the risk isn't too high and I'm fairly confident that it's true. But other assumptions where I'm not as confident or maybe when the risk is extremely high, are truly worth validating. And this validation will go until I understand that the risk is now small enough for me to move forward. But I won't do the validation until this is proven and, and done 100%, right? I, well, I, I, love, I love your thinking on this too. I struggle with this when I talk to product managers about trying to, I would talk to somebody the other day who said, we have 8,000 customers. I need to get 60 interviews in order to get statistical significance. I was like, well... You don't get statistical significance from interviews. Exactly. It's not meaningful anyway, because they all have different business processes. So you really need to interview 300 to get statistical significance if you are going to go for that. And, and you can learn a lot by talking to one customer. You can immediately find out that something's a stupid idea with just one customer. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, you might want to talk to more than one, but sometimes one is enough. <laughs> Yeah, and one of the things that I do, again, when, when I work with my customers on strategy, sometimes they tell me, I don't know. Usually when I hear, I don't know, I challenge them because I found out that people confuse, I don't know, with I don't know everything there is to know, or I don't know for sure. But even if you don't know everything and you don't know for sure, you do know a lot. So let's talk about what you do know, even if these are just assumptions. Putting it in words and even distinguishing facts from assumptions is a very, very, very powerful tool to shape your thinking and also to align with with everyone else in the company. I'll I'll give you an example from 
from another domain. Often when, when you're working with engineers that work on, on AI or machine learning, engineers and, and uh, data scientists, and you ask them for time estimates, they tell you, I don't know. It's research. I don't know. It will be ready when it's ready. But I need some time estimates because I need to plan a ton of work around it. But what I need is a ballpark. And when I start asking them, okay, is it one week or six months? That's when they say, ah, no, it's not one week for sure. It's probably three months. I'm hoping that we won't get to six months. Okay, that's a ton more information than I had before you said this sentence, even though, even though you didn't give me strict answers and numbers. So, so it's, it's the same with, with data as, as a product manager and supporting your decisions. Uh, do you know the book, How to Measure Anything by Douglas W. Hubbard? No, I haven't read it. I think you would find it very interesting. So he says you can measure anything. But many, many measurements, particularly of importance to business, the results either are too expensive, that's like interviewing 3,000 customers, or the uncertainty bars on the results are so high that you can't actually make a decision based on it. One of the things he suggests in those kinds of cases is to put some limits on. Oh, it's going to be more than a week, but it'll be less than six months, pretty sure. Pretty sure it'll be less than six months. Exactly. Because you still can't know. I, I highly recommend the book. You mentioned that you try to make your blog posts actionable, you know, with actual actions. And um, I try to do that with the, with the podcast. So do you have uh, maybe three things you suggest people start putting into action right away to make use of some of these ideas? Let me try to, to put this advice and actions in context. Let's say that this is advice for people who want to become product leaders. The first thing I would say is act as if you're a product leader already. This is the best advice because much like, you know, when, when I was a development manager tasked with do this, this project, I wasn't nominated to do market research. No, no one asked me to, but I did it anyway, and it had great results. And then the company understood that I have potential to actually do something that is closer to the business, and then they offered it to me. When, when you act as your next level, even if you don't have the authority to do that, you don't have to, you don't, it doesn't mean that you go and decide on things that are beyond your domain, but it does mean that you see yourself as a partner in these decisions. And it does mean that you uh, make it your responsibility to see the bigger picture, even when it goes beyond your current domain. That's something that people see and people can react to. So that would be the first advice. Related to that, it's relatively close, is try to see things from the point of view of your manager and their manager. So put yourself in their shoes. That's true, especially when they're in the conflict. So when you think they don't get it, it's probably because they see something that you don't see, right? They're, they're not stupid people, pardon my language, <laughs> right? In most cases, they've got their job for a reason. Give them the credit that if they disagree with you, there is something that they are seeing that you don't. It doesn't mean that you're entirely wrong. It might mean that there is a single point that is currently a blind spot for you. So try to understand what it is and understand why they think that what you're doing won't work or that you should go in a certain direction. The third one 
would be to start and stretch yourself in a variety of dimensions because product management in general and product leadership specifically is a role that requires so many different skills that you need to master to succeed in and some of these skills actually contradict each other right so you need to be super strategic but also meticulous on the details you need to be very analytical and work with numbers but also understand psychology and work with and work well with people they don't necessarily contradict each other but you need to have evidence for every decision you make but also make a lot of decisions under extreme conditions of uncertainty in each of these dimensions and these are just a few i can go on and on right for, for almost <laughs> anything on each of these dimensions We all have a tendency towards one side or the other. But the thing is that with product leadership, you actually need to master both sides. So understand which side is your tendency in and start stretching yourself to also master the other side. So for example, one of the things is to work well, well with people, but the other thing is to uh, you cannot always avoid conflict, right? It's, uh, you, have to, you have to be able to make hard decisions and decisions that are not in consensus. You, you have to be able to do both. So if your tendency is to avoid conflict, you need to, on one hand, keep being someone that is really, it's really great to work with. And on the other hand, be willing to have conflicts, even though you still want to be the person that people love working with, right? Yes, of course. So you want to stretch yourself and under, understand the dimensions, understand your tendency, and start expanding your capabilities in each dimension. Well, I really appreciate you coming up with those three awesome ideas for taking action immediately. And I really have enjoyed hearing your ideas and resonating with them. Gladly. Thanks for having me. If anybody wants to learn more about Noah Gannot and your offerings and your writings, what should they do? So you can, uh, you can always visit my website. It's uh, www.gannotnoah.com. You probably have it in the links or something. I'll put it in the show notes for sure, yeah. yeah. And you, you can do a few things there. Of course, you can contact me. I have all my contact information there. But also, you have my blog. You can uh, subscribe to my newsletter mm -hmm. to, to get them directly to your email. And also, there is, um, there is an e-book that I wrote about speeding up the journey to product market fit that you can yes. also download and, uh, and enjoy. It is a very, very actionable book with lots of specific frameworks that you'll need to use throughout, throughout your journey. Fantastic. I'll definitely put all those links in the show notes. This has been really just wonderful information from you, Noah, and I'm really happy you were able to join me. Thank you. Thanks again to Noah Gonot for joining me on today's episode. I loved our conversation. She has lots of valuable insights for product managers and leaders, as you heard. You can find more information at her website, which is at ganotnoa.com, G-A-N-O-T-N-O-A.com, including her blog and other great resources. And you can find that link and links to all the resources we mentioned in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 83. And on that page, you can also subscribe to the podcast, leave us a comment, a question, or a complaint, share the podcast with a friend or colleague, and find links to other episodes of the podcast, and there's quite a few now. 
Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple's iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will help other product managers find the show and spread the word, which helps all of us out. Until next week, this is Nels Davis signing off. Bye-bye.